All right, let me pray for us and we'll get into Mark. God, we thank you for the rain. We thank you. It reminds us of your word teaching us that you are a good God. You make it rain on the just and the unjust alike. Your mercy is truly astounding. And we do thank you for that. And we thank you for just the refreshing rain, the way that it brings growth and life. And particularly in Arizona this time of year, a lot of greenery. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for an opportunity to study your word, which also brings us life. And I pray that as we look at Mark this morning, you would accomplish that work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 6, verse 53. And I think we'll get into, we will definitely get into chapter 7. And uh, I would encourage you to remember verse 52 that under the that the disciples did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened I think that concept will come back into play here in chapter 7 um, but verse 53 it says when they had crossed over that's Jesus and the disciples they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized Jesus and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Welcome. Come on in. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples have kind of been hanging around the Sea of Galilee, going back and forth even. At this point, they are crossing from the northeast side of the lake to the west side of the lake, um, which would be more traditionally like Jewish areas. They anchor at Gennesaret, and this is a populated, fertile plain on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the rabbis actually called this plain the Garden of God. They called it a paradise. And the whole region is called Gennesaret, but there's also a localized little village, little city there called Gennesaret. Um, you know, sometimes living in Maricopa, if people aren't from here, they're like, oh yeah, Maricopa, I know that. You know, that's the Joe Arpaio County, right? And you're like, no, Maricopa is a city that's not in Maricopa County. Okay, so you have kind of one of those things. Gennesaret is a town within a larger area called Gennesaret. And Jesus continues his healing ministry. Mark has emphasized this quite a bit in his gospel. The point is that this man is supernatural. He has power over all kinds of things. We've seen power over demons and power over nature and power to heal people. This is a, a divine man that we're encountering in Jesus. It when Jesus heals, it validates his claim that he has come from God the Father. And uh, it also, and I think we've touched on this too, would, it solidifies Mark's testimony about Jesus. Because if you wanted to investigate this man, you could go to Gennesaret and you could ask, hey, has anybody in this area healed, been healed by a guy named Jesus? And presumably there would be many people because that's what Mark seems to be drawing out in his text. Now notice in verse 55, the urgency of the people. Now Mark has this flair to his gospel, right? We've talked a lot about the word immediately and you see it there in verse uh, 54, but people immediately recognized him and what did they do? They ran. Does anybody have a different translation that uses a different word? Or is ran, yours ran there? Hurried. Hurried. Okay. So they're, they're in a hurry. They're running. They're urgent about this, uh, which I think is kind of cool. And I think that it, this is a small thing, but it's illustrative or it illustrates the way that we too should, op, uh, should respond to an opportunity to encounter Jesus. The culture that we live in tends to be urgent about all the wrong things. Uh, even on my way to church this morning, I was in the left turn lane to pull left, to turn left, and I was the first kind of at the light, and I turned left. Come on in, grab a seat, wherever you can find one. I turned left, and the guy behind me turns left behind me, then zooms around me, cuts me off, 
to only only to end up at a left turn light like a hundred yards down the way, like right next to me, you know. And I, I don't even know where you would be going at seven thirty on a Sunday morning that is south of town. The only thing I could think of is the casino, mm-hmm. uh, which maybe not. Who knows? But. Um, the point is, we hurry, 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 but we hurry towards all the wrong things. Like, have you ever been running late to work and so you're anxious about the fact that you're going to show up late to work, but you had not yet even opened your Bible this morning or spent a, a, a moment in prayer, right? So, man, we rush, but we neglect the thing that is most needful for us. And the power of Jesus in this particular story uh, is kind of interesting. Mark adds a little nuance that he hasn't touched on before, which is that the healing power of Jesus, um, well, he actually has touched on this, forgive me, because we already dealt with the woman who reached out and touched his cloak, right? She thinks to herself, if I can only touch my cloak. So I guess Mark is re-emphasizing this. But the power of Jesus is so great that it will even pass through his clothes to heal people. Um, yeah, this is a picture of the generous nature of God to transform people who come to him. Um, and I'm reminded of Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that says that, you know, are you not aware that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Well, I, as I was praying and we were talking before class was kind of get going about rain and God sending the rain on the just and the unjust. Why? Why does God do that? So that he might draw people to himself, that his kindness might cause them to come to him in repentance and faith. Sadly, I think we can presume that many of these people don't become sincere followers of Jesus. And I think I mentioned this at some point over the last couple of weeks or, or, you know, the last couple of sections that we've gone through. It seems fairly clear that by the time Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, his followers were, his group of followers was actually fairly small. I mean, it was more than 12. I think the indication is something like 500 which is really not actually that many when you think about the fact that Jesus is drawing crowds of 10 to 15,000 people when he's feeding them and teaching them. And yet by the time he actually rises from the dead, his following is quite small. So I think it's fair to say that even though these people are coming and they're benefiting from the ministry of Jesus, they're being healed. Once that healing is accomplished, where do they go? Well, they go back to whatever they were doing before they started following Jesus. And we all know how this goes. When something new and exciting happens in your life, how long does that feeling linger? Not long, right? I mean, God has done some really incredible things in my life, but I'm no longer telling those stories because they were 10 years ago, right? Um, And maybe a new one will happen and I'll tell that one, but within a couple of weeks, I'm not telling it anymore. Um, And so this is just, again, human nature that uh, the further we get from the impact that God is having in our lives, the more we just lose the, the sense of importance connected to it. So these people get their healing and then Jesus moves on to the next town and within a couple of weeks, we can presume, you know, they, they weren't following him any longer. And this is, man, I I can't even tell you the number of times as a pastor I've seen this. And again, I think I've mentioned this too, but, you know, people will reach out to me in desperation and I'll spend some time with them and I'll offer them counseling. And, you know, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to come to your church. And they do for like a couple of weeks. And then the crisis blows away. And where do they go? They're gone. Right? They go right back. And I've even started warning people. I've even started, I mean... Because when you, I've been in Maricopa now 12 years, you know, I was doing um, the chaplain thing for a while. And I know some of the council members and things like that just from being around. Right. And so occasionally I'll get a call and it's like, hey, I'm in this crisis. Somebody referred me to you. Can you sit down with me? I've started warning people. I know exactly how this is going to happen. I'm happy to help you. I love the opportunity to point you to Jesus. You need to understand that apart from him, you have no 
no hope, no salvation, no ultimate joy. And God is so merciful. He's willing to help you. But I know how this goes. There's a good chance that we'll work, we'll work through this crisis together. We'll help you get by. And then on the other side of it, you'll walk away. And even warning people that that will happen still happens. So people turn to God in desperation, but after his kindness has had its effect, they tend to just walk away. Tragic. Any thoughts on any of that? It just brings to mind, <clears throat> and it probably has, I don't know, it has anything to do with anything, but faith healers and uh, people who flock to them and then they do or they don't get what they want and then that's really all they came there for. Yeah. That's really all. That was really their only reason for even being there. Yeah. Right. But either way, they either got what they wanted or they did, and then that was the end of it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, and we talked about that a little bit too as we were dealing with some of Jesus' earlier healings in Mark. Um But yeah, I mean when when we're in desperation we go looking for help and sometimes we look in the wrong place, sometimes we look in the right place, and then we, we don't respond appropriately. Um, but man, Jesus is eager to bring people the healing that they really need, which is, and we're going to see this as we get into chapter seven. It's a healing that is transformational in the heart, right? That's, that's what people really need. Okay, let's pick up in chapter seven then. And I'm going to read verses one through 13. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. It's interesting that another point Jesus is going to call these people um, like cups that are that where the outside is clean but not the inside. Um, so you can see maybe the connection there. All right, verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. I, this wasn't in my notes, but um, that's sarcasm. It is. Right? He's not being serious. I mean, he's being very serious. But when he says you have a fine way, what he means is actually the exact opposite. Verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. We imagine that Jesus could have gone on and on and on with examples. We'll get to the specifics of this um, impropriety that he is accusing them of. But first, verses 1 and 2 set up a, set up the conflict that's about to unfold. Uh, and it's, it's going to carry actually all the way through verse 23. I don't know that we'll get to the second chunk of it today, verses 14 through 23, even though the sections are so tightly knit together. But after the conflict is set up, then hopefully your Bible does put some parentheses in here because this is a helpful... English uh, sort of way of notifying you that 
Mark as the narrator is now going to add some historical context to this conflict. Okay, he explains the backstory, and this is helpful because as Gentiles we may not know this process of hand washing and how the religious leaders thought about all of this. Okay, defiled here or unwashed. What does it actually signify? Yeah, it's a ritual uncleanness, right? I mean, at this point in human history, people knew nothing about bacteria. Jesus does, I'm sure, because he's God. But, um, you know, they're not talking about getting the dirt off your hands. They're talking about this process of ritual purification when you uh, eat. And the Pharisees saw unwashed hands as being impure, an offense against God. Okay. Let's talk for just a couple of minutes about the Pharisees, because I don't know that we've done that yet, even though we've encountered them on a couple of occasions. Um, so the Pharisees are obviously, we call them the religious leaders or the Jewish leaders of the day. They're a particular sect, and Judaism had at least three different sects. S-E-C-T-S. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Okay, And there were probably, even within those parties, different um, uh, different subdivisions, but the Pharisees practiced a strict observance with the Jewish law, and uh, they the Pharisees in particular came active around 150 BC, and around 135 AD, they would sort of disappear by getting absorbed into what's called the rabbinic tradition that would give birth to uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud, okay? And let's distinguish between the Pharisees and the Sadducees for a few reasons. Most people know one reason why these groups are different. Does anybody want to take a guess at it? One thing they disagreed on? Resurrection. Resurrection. And we really get that highlighted because Paul, in particular, kind of saves his own skin one day by throwing that, lobbing that bomb into a, a council of Pharisees and Sadducees and sending them arguing with each other to take the attention off of himself. He says, it's with respect to the resurrection that I'm here today. And that just it lights the whole room on fire. Um, but the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, whereas the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. But there's a few other differences. So the, the religious power and influence of the Pharisees was centered more around two things. The synagogue and also oral tradition. Okay, So they were kind of experts in oral tradition and the synagogue was central to them. That doesn't mean they weren't involved in the temple, but really the Sadducees kind of had political power in the temple. So the way you might even think about this is like, you know, the US House of Representatives. Right now, it is dominated by Democrats, uh, even though there are Republicans present in it, okay? So you might think about in the time of Jesus, sort of the temple, um, you know, operation being kind of dominated by the Sadducees. And um, and the Sadducees were, I mean, they were all, all of these Jewish leaders were committed to, um, to the Torah, of course, to the law of Moses, the Old Testament. But the Sadducees in particular tended to downplay oral tradition. They weren't quite as fixated on it, which is why you have the Pharisees represented here and not the Sadducees. Okay, because this this has to do with uh, tradition. Um, this also explains why the, the the Sadducees pretty much disappear from history after uh, the fall of the temple in seventy AD, because their focus was centralized around the temple. When the temple fell, um, sort of their influence diminished. And you have one other thing, which is that. And bear with me in this distinction for, for just a second, but the Pharisees were Jewish conservatives, whereas the Sadducees were slightly more liberal. And what I mean by that is just that the Sadducees were slightly more Hellenized. They were more willing to engage with the Greek and Roman culture because it afforded them political power than the Pharisees were. Okay, The Pharisees utterly opposed Herod and his court because Herod was sort of a pseudo-Jew that was sold out to Rome, whereas the Sadducees were more willing to work with him. Um, both groups, though, had a religious fervor. They were zealots, and uh, 
another shared aspect of this is that their religion was predominantly external in nature, which is where this conflict begins to really kind of become clear. Any questions on any of that? Comments? Okay, so Mark's explanation concerning the Jewish rituals of cleansing uh, in verses 3 and 4, right? Pharisees strictly held to these rituals of cleansing. Now, they probably developed out of the Old Testament commands around how to make the how to essentially sanctify the vessels that were used in the tabernacle and the temple. Sanctify meaning clean them, make them holy, ritually prepare them to be used in the presence of God. So it probably came out of that. Uh, even though there are no, obviously no commands regarding washing your hands in the Old Testament, or Jesus wouldn't say what he says about this. This has nothing to do with God's commands, okay? Um, so the, the religious leaders, though, particularly the Pharisees, were prone to follow these traditions that they had received in addition to the law, right? So in their minds, the traditions of their elders were on essentially the same plane as the Torah. Um, and this is a little bit like the Catholic Church, right? The Catholic Church places authority in really uh, three things. It places authority in what's called the magisterium, which is like the Pope and the interpretive council. It places authority in church and church history and church tradition. And then the, the third one would be scripture. Okay, but those are all on equal plane. And actually the longer the Catholic church goes on, it becomes clear that scripture is the lowest of those three. Whereas what, what as Protestants, where do we place authoritative teaching? In the pastor, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. In the Bible, right? So, you know, if the pastor gets up there and says something that's contrary to the Bible, then we throw out what he says, not what the Bible says. Okay? That's where we put our authority. And that's what Jesus seems to be driving people towards. Right? Why are you elevating your traditions at the expense of what uh, God has declared? Um... And uh, where the scribes come in, because we see them mentioned a lot too, is the oral traditions, the interpretations of the Old Testament were, um, you know, they, they made their way into every aspect of Jewish life. And they were, these traditions were considered binding, at least in the minds of the Jews, the same way that the law was considered binding. And they would be passed on through scribes in particular. These are experts in the law, and they're experts not merely in the Torah, but also in the oral tradition that in the minds of the Jews became a, a, a sort of amendment or addendum to the law. Uh, and I, as I sort of already mentioned, in the third century AD, these oral traditions were eventually collected and codified, and they were turned into what's called the Mishnah and the Torah, I'm sorry, the Mishnah and the eventually what's called the Talmud. Any thoughts, questions on that? Okay, the most common kind of ritual washing uh, is the washing of the hands before meals, although they did all kinds of things. Did we already talk about the, the mikvah? Have we talked about a mikvah? So outside of almost every synagogue was uh, like what's, what we would think of as a baptismal pool and um, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jews in particular, would be constantly going down into that water as a form of ritual washing and purification. And it had to be a particular kind of cold running water, what they called living water. So these were sophisticated baptismals that had inlets and outlets for the dirty water, inlets for the clean water. Anyway, but similar to this is just the simple act of washing their hands. And this would be particularly important, Mark tells us in verse um, 4, coming from the marketplace. Why would that be the case? Why would you need to wash after coming from the market? Because marketplace is really cold. <laughs> you might get COVID. Well, there was, there was Gentiles. Yeah, because there was Gentiles. 
you might accidentally, and you, you probably wouldn't even necessarily know, maybe you would know by the, by the dress or something, but you might accidentally bump a Gentile and, and then you would be unclean in the eyes of God. Really, you'd be unclean in the eyes of the Jews. And so to just be sure that you were in good shape, you would go and you would wash, right? Um, the other thing too is, you know, you're in the marketplace, maybe you go to pick up a mug that you're gonna buy and you don't know, but a Gentile touched that mug and then you're unclean, right? And the last thing you wanna do is go before God unclean and not even know it because then you're in big trouble. And the word wash here that Mark uses is actually, anybody know? Yes, it is the word baptizo, the Greek word baptizo, which is our word for baptize, okay? Um, not that anybody probably really cares, but baptizo does have ingrained in its meaning immersion. So, okay, whatever. That forget it. We're gonna move on. Um, so, yeah. Then, then we get Mark's comment here as well that uh, the Pharisees had lots of traditions like this. Right at the end of verse four. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. I don't even know how you do that. Um, and so for a royal or for a Jew to uh, ignore these oral traditions um, was really considered, at least in the eyes of the Jews, a form of sin. Um, there's no basis for that according to the law that God gave his people but the Jews created this system where if you were outside of these things you were you were considered doing wrong in the eyes of God okay so you this helps us understand why they're so shocked and offended that Jesus who's supposed to be a teacher he's an unauthorized rabbi right he didn't go through any of the the authorized schools but he's he clearly knows his stuff because he yeah, as a 10-year-old was in the temple, um, yeah, amazing the, the Pharisees and the scribes there, right? Or the, the sad, whatever, the religious leaders. And uh, so he's unauthorized, and now he's going about saying, and your oral traditions, they don't mean nothing, right? We, we, do, we do something different here, okay? So then in response to the question that he's asked, why, verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. Now, the question itself proves that they know what about their habits here? Their traditions, which means they're not laws, right? They don't go so far as to say, why do you and your disciples not follow Moses? Instead, they say the traditions of our elders, okay? And uh, so, so you, can, you can actually see some self-awareness that they understand these things are not on equal footing with what God has commanded, and yet they treat them that way. And so Jesus responds that Isaiah prophesied about these people, hypocrites, by saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Um, I think we talked about this before, but this is an, an, another just interesting thing to remind you. The way that sort of like prophecy seems to work in the Bible, the way that we come to understand it when the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Who do you think Isaiah had at least in, immediately in his mind as he was writing those words? The unfaithful Jews of his time. Yeah, the unfaithful Jews of his own time, right? And, but now Jesus is reading that and saying that was a prophecy. Does that mean that Isaiah wasn't talking about the unfaithful Jews of his time? No, it doesn't undo that. It just means that prophecy tends to have kind of this layer to it where there might be an immediate fulfillment, a future fulfillment, and even an ultimate fulfillment, possibly. I wouldn't say that there's necessarily an, necessarily an ultimate fulfillment here, but there's probably the potential for ongoing fulfillment as people in the church continue to engage in this kind of behavior, right? Where we profess with our lips that we love Jesus, but in, in vain, our hearts are actually far from him. Is that the same as a pattern? 
Uh, I would say a pattern is different because usually a pattern you can anticipate what might come next. We really can't, like we can't do what Jesus does here. Like if I were to just, you know, take an obscure chunk from Isaiah and say, this prophecy is fulfilled in this. I, I don't have that freedom. Only the spirit, only Jesus, only the the apostles under the authority of the spirit can give us that kind of understanding. Does that make sense? Um, and so Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13. Um, man, I encourage you as Christians to read the prophets. I mean, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the minor prophets too, but they come up quite a bit in the New Testament. And they're books that we tend to neglect. Um, Wednesday night Bible study for the man who's going through Isaiah right now. Yeah, nice. Man, Isaiah is so good. Uh, and I recognize that like the first 40 chapters are more challenging because they're more like in Israel's history. But man, once you get to chapter 40 and beyond, so good. I mean, it's all good. Don't misunderstand, but... Most quoted book. Is it? Yeah. It's cool. I don't know. That shouldn't surprise us. There's sort of a correlation maybe with Ezekiel 33 verse 31 here. I think there's a little bit of an, of an echo. I, Ezekiel 33 31 says, And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. Right? I mean, it's a little bit different picture, but it's the same kind of idea that they they know these things, but then when it comes to actually practicing them, they don't do them. Man, and how much does that describe many people professing to be Christians today? Right? Like, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Um, yeah. Okay, so Jesus is going to go on to say, look, these regulations, they're not from God. They're from men. Um, and in saying that, he's denouncing them. Remember, these are very powerful people. These are people that have the Jewish culture, at least, kind of wrapped around their, their fingers. They are the movers and shakers in this world in which Jesus is traveling. Um, now, I want to point out two equally destructive errors that people make with the commands of God. And I think maybe we've talked about this too, but it's worth revisiting. When it comes to the commands of God, we can make an error one way or the other. Anybody want to take a guess at what one of those things might be? God commands something. And we do one of two things in response. You have to hold the line. You either go too far trying to hedge and not go and restrict yourself further than you need to, or you go beyond it. Yep, exactly. And I use these two words, license or legalism. Okay, license or legalism, I think is a helpful way to think about holding that line. So license is you feel free to do what you want, even though the command is clear. Okay, so, you know, God says that uh, sex has its proper place in marriage. And if you are engaging in license, then you think, eh, it doesn't really matter that much. You know, whatever. I can go do that because it'll be fine. Okay. Yeah, right. That sort of thing. Yeah, we're going to get married anyway. Or I really love this person. Right. Um, so license is you take the command and you say, I'm not going to follow it. Legalism is you take the command and you say, well, we don't want to cross that line and we want to be careful to not even get close to the line. So let's add some things to God's commands so that we don't make the mistake of sinning against it. Okay. And what's the problem with either one of those? Yeah, you are placing yourself in authority over what God has said. Right? God said the line is here, and you say, no, I think we should move it back here. That's dangerous. God says the line is here, and you say, no, I think we can press it and move it further back over here. Right? 
that is to diminish the authority of God, to diminish the wisdom of his word, to place yourself in authority over God's word. You did that right in the beginning when she said, told the serpent, or you know, God, she said, God said you can neither eat of it nor touch it. Well, God didn't say you could touch it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I mentioned this when we were going through Genesis, my perspective on that. We don't know for sure where she got that additional command, but it is interesting, isn't it, that the first problem that man encounters is not license. It's actually moving towards legalism, right? Because when you look at chapter two, God says to Adam, don't eat the fruit, okay? We don't see Adam pass that command on to Eve, but Eve was not created yet, okay? And maybe God gave it to Eve himself, we don't know. But the way I understand this is God gave it to Adam with the expectation that Adam would give it to his wife. That's part of what authority over the woman means. And then what we find in, in chapter 3 is that uh, when the serpent comes, Eve isn't confident what God said. And so she says, well, God told us not to even touch it. Isn't that interesting, right? And the serpent's playing on that. She's not confident. Yeah. He says, did God really did say Did God really say to start wondering. Yep. And I think Adam blew it and was kind of like, hey, Eve, so there's this tree over there, and let's not even go near it, right? Even though that wasn't the command. Um, and you. So, so Adam didn't really communicate to eight. <laughs> that's kind of what I think. I, I think he. I think he blew it there. But again, I can't like prove it. There's not a verse that says that. But okay. Um, Colossians two twenty through twenty three says, "If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world?" Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So I think what he's saying is like, look, people are heaping upon you these things that you shouldn't touch, you shouldn't taste. It's good to be ascetic. It's good to not engage in things that are pleasurable. Just stay away from it. The problem that Paul, I think, is dealing with here is that, yeah, outwardly you appear very spiritual, but that doesn't mean necessarily that there's alignment with what's in your heart. Okay. I think a way that Jesus teases this out and kind of mocking people is, hey, Pharisees, uh, if your eye causes you to lust, why don't you just tear it out? Because if you tore out your eyes, you'd never look lustfully after a woman, right? And you could get straight into heaven. The problem is it's not the eye that causes the lust. It's the desire of the heart that, manip- that uses the eye in partnership. But you could ask any guy if he has any problem with lusting without, you know, having his eyes open. Okay? So the indulgence of the flesh that Paul is referring to in Colossians 2 is essentially centered in the heart. And that's what Jesus is getting at in these verses that we're looking at in Mark. And so we have to accept this reality that the Bible teaches that our actions flow from our heart. Now, that sounds probably very like obvious and simple and self-evident to you. Um, but this idea of you change the heart and you change the person actually is relatively controversial. It, 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 particularly in our culture now, but I think through all of human history, the predominant idea has been that we do things, but those things don't necessarily reflect who we are inside. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of unpack this a little bit more. But an unconverted heart is going to look for license or legalism. An unconverted heart. And, and, and Paul says, your problem here, guys, is that if you, if you make these kinds of constraints upon yourself, you, you, you're not actually changing the nature of who you are. Those things might be effective in, in giving an outward appearance, but they're not effective in ultimately transforming the human heart. Okay? One, one thing they will do, I mean, not that we should care as Christians so much, but it is nice to live in a nation that does have God's rules because they are a blessing. I mean, they are the way to live. Um, 
Yeah, and I don't think Paul would go so far as to say um, totally ignore things like do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. I think what he's saying is if you think that that will produce a transformed internal nature, you're doing it wrong. Is it still good? Yeah, if you, even for the non-believer, the best way to live your life is in accordance with God's commands, okay? So absolutely, should we want a, a nation that has biblical moral principles driving it? Totally, because there's going to be blessing in that, absolutely. But that does not mean then that the people raised in that culture will all have changed hearts that lead to life forever in heaven. Probably just less STDs. <laughs> Absolutely. Less STDs, less ruined families, less misery and depression, less anxiety and fear. Totally. But still, there's, there's still wisdom in avoiding those things that you know you will trip over. Yeah. I mean, there are, there's still some wisdom in that. Totally. But that's not what he's talking about. Totally. And going back to what I was saying earlier, when I do counsel people that are in crisis, I mean, I don't give them psychology or therapy. I say, I'm a Christian. You came to me. I'm a pastor, so I don't really have much wisdom. I have God's word, so I will give that to you. What you decide to do with it then is up to you. But if you want to fix your marriage, if you want to get out of financial crisis, if you want to find hope, all of that wisdom is going to come here. Um... Okay, uh, I'll just give you like a practical example here concerning kind of verse seven. Um, I mean, all of this, right? Uh, you leave the commandment of God and hold the, verse seven, you know, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men, you leave the commandments of God, you teach the traditions of men. Um, I'll just give you sort of an example here, and this connects too with the passage I just read from uh, Colossians, right? That um, like Maricopa Springs, many many churches for their elders, this is particularly the case in Baptist churches, but they have a policy where their elders cannot drink. Um, and I think that there's wisdom in a policy like that because I think that alcohol can be a super dangerous thing. It's It can entice you and lower your inhibitions and lead to all kinds of problems. But... The issue with having a policy that says your elders cannot do it is you can get the behavior that you want through a policy like that, but you do not necessarily therefore know that the heart of the person who signed the policy is actually submitted to that idea, right? Um, and the Bible doesn't say don't drink. The Bible says don't, you know, don't lose self-control. Don't uh, be, don't be inhibit, sorry, uninhibited. Um, don't be intoxicated. Don't get drunk on wine. Be drunk on the spirit. Those kinds of things. Okay. So I would rather be confident of an elder team that we know is going to have good conduct because their hearts are changed and that's what they desire than an elder team where we think we're going to have good conduct because they've signed some piece of paper. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, you know, I got a question about that. I, mean, yeah. I, I agree, but just to kind of push a yeah, little bit. Please. How come you don't um, see that in Scripture? I agree only if you have a changed heart, you're going to do the actions. But, like, I can't think of one time in the epistles where it's worded like that. It's worded like, stop doing these things. I mean, the left of the epistles are always like, here's what God's done in your heart. Now I want you to put away this, put away that, do these things. I mean... So while I agree, I also don't see, I wouldn't, I wouldn't find that kind of idea, like, don't try to not do things, you know? Don't you don't find the idea, don't try to not do things? I'm saying I, I see the command to stop doing things, like, and putting it on man that is walking with God. Like, it's not just, just let your heart, it's very imperative, but there's tons of imperatives, right? Well, I think that those imperatives are operating in the assumption that I am speaking to somebody with a transformed heart. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, if somebody is professing to be a Christian and they're in my office with me and they're a drunkard, I'm going to say very boldly, like, stop, put it away, don't buy it again, right? And at the same time, I'm going to say, and does your heart really love Jesus the way that it should? Right, so um, I guess what I'm saying is, I hope you have in place where the elders like 
you cannot commit adultery, <laughs> right? I mean, regardless of whether they're going to do it because of their heart. Well, I know. Is that what we're distinguishing from non-commands? Because I think that all we're distinguishing is whether you should tell somebody not to do something. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, I think, I mean, I would obviously have no problem saying that to an elder, right? But, but I think I would actually go to the higher ground, which is you should love your neighbor, right? Which means you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife and you should honor that marriage commitment and you shouldn't interfere with it, right? And, and like, and you should love God, which means that you should do everything that he commands, which is love your own wife and forsake lust, um, but I, I don't think it has to be an either or. It should be a both and, right? Which is why I actually wouldn't condemn a church that says we have a no drinking policy. Um, I think I would be. But that's not a scripture. True. So, I mean, that can, I can see why that should. Yeah. I mean, why can't you drink? Just drink to drunkenness. That's the problem. Right. And it's funny that we zero in on that. And it's like. Do do any of your elders eat eight thousand calories in a day? Because that's <laughs> that's lack of self control, right? Like, so there might be other places where we should bring that kind of scrutiny. And if you're going to go that route, then you end up like the the Pharisees with this long, long document that everybody has to sign that says, "I won't do this. I won't do this. I won't do this. I won't do this." And then it's kind of like, what's the point? Isn't that what they? What is it that they've got these all these little notes around everything all around the pages about you know you've got the law and then they got all the little notes around the pages about and also and also and also yeah yeah isn't, isn't that kind of the way they, they yeah that's really what ends up becoming kind of like yeah. the Mishnah and the Talmud but yes um, there's a technical term for that but I can't think of what it is yeah, off the yeah. top of my head the elder don't drink wine but drink soda all day long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that kind of thing, right? You may not have an alcohol addiction, but you've got a sugar addiction. Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure uh, maybe that I've answered your question sufficiently. I think, I think the Bible is ultimately after the heart and not the behavior, and I think that's what Jesus is going to tease out here. But, but if it gets the heart, the behavior is going to follow. Yeah, I just think always... Whenever somebody's trying to do the will of, of God, like, I mean, your heart, I can't, let me try to rephrase this. Can people try to do the will of God without a changed heart? Yes, but but you still need the changed heart to do the will of God. And um, I still think the command is do the will of God. Like, the, the discipline is do, you know, this, this is how you know you love me. You obey my commands. I mean, it's almost like the message is let go, let God. If you're changed, just let go. I will, will make you walk in the spirit. And I think that's kind of dangerous in the sense of like, you still have a torn, you're still living in the flesh suit. Walk in the spirit is the command, not just you will walk in the spirit. The command is you need to walk in the spirit. I need to do something here. I can't do it apart from God. I'm not trying to take the glory from God. But the idea is make decisions and do things, not just I will do them. I might be convicted by them if I do them. That's the difference. That doesn't mean I will do them. Yes, and this is where we would say that like walking in obedience is what we would say synergistic. It is so salvation is monergistic, meaning that it's just God. God is the only agent that works in your salvation. You contribute nothing, but. Growing in holiness is, or, or walking in obedience is synergistic. It is your commitment to that end in cooperation with the Spirit's uh, work in producing that. But I mean, this is why I think Ezekiel 36 is like one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament anticipating the New Covenant because it says, um, I mean, I'll just read it because I'm, I'm prone to butcher it, even though I probably could get it right. Uh, and I come back to this one a lot. So if you're like, oh, Grady, going back to Ezekiel 36, so cliche. But I, I think that this is really straightforward and very explicit. It says, um, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So 
does that mean, I mean, there's no like ending that says apart from your own effort, right? I, I don't think that, that that very clear statement excludes our participation in it, but it's going to happen and it's going to happen because God is at work and we're going to participate because God is at work. Is that helpful at all? Okay. Um, so I would, I, again, I think we, this is an area where we do need to avoid either ors, right? Either the spirit works in spite of me or I work whether the spirit is helping me or not. It is both. Um, and to the person who's being lazy, we need to say, get in there and do the commands. And to the person who's discouraged, we need to say, keep at it because the spirit supports you. Um, so, I don't know what time it is. Okay, let me just finish up kind of verse 8 here. Uh, yeah, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. So, in time we have this tendency to drift away from the, the commandment, the heart of the matter, and, uh, and, and be left with only the behavior. I probably should have looked this story up, but I'll, I'll end this story. I remember hearing somewhere this story of like, so there was this dude and he had a cat. And when he would wake up in the morning, he would tie the cat to the bedpost because he would sit at his desk and he would read, read the word and the cat would come to the desk and would sit on his Bible and he couldn't read, right? So he would tie the cat to the bedpost. And as his, as his children grew up, they would come in in the morning and they would see him reading his Bible with the cat tied to the bedpost, right? And then, you know, let's just say it's his daughter. She kind of grows up and she gets in her own routine and, uh, and, and she wants to emulate what her dad did. And so, you know, like once a week she, she would get her Bible out, but she would always tie the cat to the bedpost because it was easier to do that while you're getting ready than have the cat, you know, maybe play with the blow dryer cord, right? And so her daughter sees her growing up to tying the cat to the bedpost. And, and, and she, now the third generation, is always tying the cat to the bedpost. And finally somebody's like, why do you do that? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> right? That's how tradition tend, I just, that's what my mom did, right? But, and that's how tradition tends to develop. Like maybe initially there was some benefit to it, some good intention of the heart, but over time, the intention of the heart is lost. The meaning of it goes away and you're just doing what you did. Um, that's, I think, maybe sort of descriptive of, of the Pharisees. All right, that's a silly note to end on, but let me pray. God, I pray that we would, um, that we would be motivated to love you and obey you, that we would be quick to forsake the traditions of men um, and instead seek to honor you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength that everything that we do would be pleasing to you. Lord, keep us from hypocrisy. Keep us from Phariseeism. Keep us from the pride of thinking that we know better than what you have commanded in your word. Um, and I, I pray that in following Jesus, yeah, that, that, that our hearts would be clean and undefiled, not merely our actions. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.